Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. If you do the right job and you don't try and cut corners, even if it costs you, in the long run, you'll be far more successful. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm so glad that you have chosen to spend some more time with us this week. If you caught our episode on Tuesday, thank you for coming back on Thursday. I promise you will not be disappointed. There's a lot coming at you this week, but today's episode is with a veritable serial entrepreneur, a guy who just can't help himself. He has created more opportunity than most people have lost, and uh, a guy who genuinely inspires me in many different ways. I have had very few people in the course of 180 plus episodes now who have been recommended as an interviewee more than Jim Spano. So if you're not familiar with Jim, I do hope that you'll stick around, listen to what Jim has to share. This is a guy who is running more than a couple of dozen businesses in some facet or other. The first half of his career, Jim spent a fair amount of time in financial planning and asset management, in particular in real estate, for a number of his clients. We talk about growing that business and how that led ultimately to his time in solar, which is fascinating how he has been involved in shaping the face of solar in New Jersey and beyond. He's an influencer, a leader, a board member of a number of companies, and most recently has launched Radiant REIT. So today we are going to hear all about how Radiant REIT and the other ways Jim is uh, operating in solar are shaping the way you and I can do business moving forward. When you're done with this one, I do hope you'll go check out the other 175 plus inspiring and influential episodes over on mysuncast.com. You'll notice on the homepage a link to a webinar that we're hosting today for those of you who are tuning in on this Thursday, the 25th of July, with last week's guest and and this week's Tuesday guest, Jonathan Budd, as well. So tune into that. But for now, let's tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today is going to be a very fun interview. It's rare that I get a chance to interview someone who has been recommended as many times as today's guest, but I wanted to introduce Mr. Jim Spano, the managing partner of Spano Partner Holdings and a nationally recognized expert in solar development and finance. Among his accolades is being instrumental in development of more than 300 megawatts of solar, primarily in the Northeastern United States. He is a prominent and pronounced figure in his home state of New Jersey and the broader mid-Atlantic region where he serves on several boards and has been involved in, uh, shall we say, ruffling the feathers of the local energy 
uh, business uh, since his decision to enter into renewable energy a few years ago, now several years ago. If we went back to kind of how you began to form a career that was uh, involved in helping others in development, dabbled in a lot of different areas as, as a financier. But I'll let you take it back as far as you want. I graduated high school, basically came from a lower middle-income family. My dad was a truck driver. My brother had gone to college and got a, a partial scholarship. And frankly, there was not enough room for two partial scholarships, uh, aside from the fact that my brother was a A student and I was a BC student. Um, I was more the athlete. And so when it, when it came time for graduating high school, I chose to go into the Air Force, was recruited to do some silly job in the Air Force, got into basic training, found out how silly the job was, very different than what the recruiter had explained. And to make a long story short, they put us through a training program, uh, a testing program, and uh, I, apparently I tested very high in linguistic ability, and they decided that they'd uh, send me to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California to learn the Russian language. Uh, this was during the Cold War, so that I can go overseas and play I spy uh, against the Russians. And as you might imagine, when I came out of the Air Force, uh, there wasn't a great demand for Russian linguists. So I found myself uh, struggling for a career. Like anybody else, I went to the papers and responded to a job for a, a metropolitan insurance company. Several years later, became the youngest sales manager in the history of the company. In the Air Force, I learned I wasn't very good at taking orders. In fact, um, interestingly, I, despite having such an a, uh, important job, I had more promotions than any of my fellow uh, linguists, and yet I came out of the Air Force at the same pay grade that I went in because mm. I got as many demotions as I got promotions. <laughs> so I uh, started a job where you kind of your own boss, and in the insurance industry, you're basically your own boss. So took that very quickly. Uh, became you know top salesman in the in the office. They made me the youngest sales manager in the history of the company. Um, that lasted about six months, and then I got fired. Uh, I actually got fired because I had been selling other insurance companies, and uh, they said as a manager I wasn't allowed to. So um, called me back the next day, said, uh, you know, have you reconsidered? I said, no. They said, well, we have, and if you want to come back for three months, and you can train your replacement, and uh, uh, it'll give you some income while you try and figure things out. So I said, oh, that's great. Went back in, and uh, since I had all these other licenses with other companies, I let the sales guys on my unit know that I'm being replaced. And hey, guys, if you have uh, clients that Metropolitan couldn't sell to, and you're not allowed to be licensed, just like I'm not, but you can place your business through me, and I'll give you half the commissions, and you don't need to be <laughs> licensed. So long story short, uh, within a year or two, I, was, uh, I had 50, 60 salespeople working for me had a great little business, built up uh, the insurance business, turned uh, several years later, went into financial planning, accumulated quite a few wealthy clients, built up uh, a nice business. At the very end of my financial planning career, I was doing a lot of real estate conversions in New York. I was doing a lot of condo conversions in, in Greenwich Village and so forth. So I got my feet dabbled into the real estate business and um, Learned a little about real estate. And when I sold my financial planning firm, I decided that uh, me and my brother got together. And well, actually, I tried to retire. I, you know, I spent six months trying not to work and realizing how miserable I had become. So uh, me and my brother got together and said, you know, let's, let's form a real estate company. And we set up a, a charitable foundation and said we could make 
lot of money and, and do charitable work. And so that was our, our, where our heart was, our goal was. Um, unfortunately, we, we decided to go into that business in uh, 2006, put about 100 mil or so into real estate that uh, over the next couple of years got devalued. We were doing land development, so obviously that, that got devalued down to almost nothing. And I found myself with less than 30% leverage uh, underwater. Tell me about your first exposure or foray into solar power or renewables and, and how you decided that was going to be sort of the next act for you. Sure. I don't think it was actually a decision. I think uh, like many things in life, uh, circumstances lead you in directions and those directions point you to new opportunities. In this instance, when the real estate market turned and I had a very large real estate portfolio, one of the projects that I was working on was a mixed-use outdoor mall. And I was back, I was marketing as the first all-green mall in the U.S. It was building a small three-quarter megawatt system over a detention pond, back feeding it into the mall. And this is, and I'm going back, this is back in 2004, 2005, when solar was barely commercially viable. And at that point, it wasn't commercially viable. Obviously, it was more of a marketing scheme than an, than an economic play. You know, I was very, very successful. Uh, we had pretty much the entire project pre-leased. I had Target as an anchor. I had all my infill. And then, of course, the real estate market turned on us. And I had this one particular project where I was building that solar field and I, I lost all my tenants. And the only thing I was left was a small solar field. The only way to, to save the project was to build a larger solar project, which I was already in negotiations to sell the rights, the development rights to a local utility. Today, we have a, a business of solar. Back then, it was, as I said, it was marketing and it wasn't really a, a business interest. To save the property, I negotiated with the utility. We decided to build a larger system. I carved out 13 out of my 138 acres and I built a three and a half megawatt system, which I sold to that utility, used the development fees to pay down my note to the bank. And then of course, use the ground lease to service the debt on the property and was actually able to save the property. Uh, at, at that time, I was way under, I was like $4 million underwater with the bank, meaning that I owed the bank what I owed the bank was $4 million more than what the property was worth. At that time, the banks weren't foreclosing. You know, it, there was no credit out there. So the bank didn't want my property any more than anybody else. So I was fortunate enough to be able to build that larger project, save the property. And today, I actually am building 280 homes that I've sold to Kayapnanian. Um, and I have another 275,000 square feet of retail space as well. The lots I sold for $28 million, which paid for the property, basically made me whole. And then I, I'm left with 275,000 square feet of retail that is worth another twenty-five to $35 million. So solar actually saved my real estate business. And even back then, before, you know, when I was able to just hold on to the property, before I could monetize it again, like I've done recently, when I realized it enabled me to hold on to the property, I had a number of other properties in the same situation. I had a, uh, a, a large um, industrial park that I was uh, developing, the, had developed a second phase, and I couldn't sell a single lot because people could buy you know, a lot with a building on it for less than my development lot. So I uh, decided that since things worked out on that first project that I'd build solar on that one, and I built a 12 and a half megawatt system on that property, 
sold it to a fund. It was very successful, got a great ground lease. And then I went around the state with all my other properties. I had another you know, 10, 12 properties, and we started building solar on all of them. Pretty much put me in the lead for the largest privately owned developer in New Jersey. And it really wasn't that I went into the solar business. It was really that the solar business provided me a means to retain control of my properties and to be able to monetize them during a uh, a time in our real estate cycle where real estate was devalued to the point of of being economically not viable. So it it really saved the business and was the starting point of, of the new career. One of the folks that I worked for said about solar, he said, solar is real estate development without the occupancy risk. Does that resonate for you? That more than resonates. 100% agreement. I have some major plays. Uh, As you know, my Radiant REIT, um, which is a solar mortgage REIT, um, is founded on the basis that these systems are, in fact, real estate. They're long-term stable infrastructure. And there is no distinction between real estate and a solar system, a building and a solar system, other than the solar system, uh, as you indicated. I don't have to worry about tenants coming and going. All I do is collect my coupons on my power sales. How did you bridge the gap between, if there was one, between real estate development and solar? How did you inform uh, what to do next or seek advice? I think that the reason so many people struggle in the solar industry is because they approach it as real estate development. Hmm. Um, You see so often attorneys, accountants, and other professionals that uh, other business people that go into real estate development, um, once they've accumulated enough wealth to be able to play in the game. Unfortunately, unlike a real estate development where you have a hard asset that's very easy to collateralize and you can repurpose it for any number of uses, uh, you know, a building is a building. You have different types of tenancies, different types of uses in a building. A solar system is a single use. It generates power. There's no other basis for it. Um, So yes, from a tenancy perspective, much better than real estate in that you're not chasing tenants and rents and everything else. You're just clipping your power coupons. On the other hand, the key differentiator between a solar system developer and a real estate developer is the financing. Everybody understands mortgages, financing real estate, basic stuff. Everybody knows what it takes to get it financed. And it's, it's, you know, well-established, no questions. When you get into solar systems, very, very, very different. Um, The revenue sources aren't, there's not a standard lease. You have power purchase agreements and they can vary incredibly. One sentence in a power purchase agreement can make it non-financeable. So the finance aspect, and I think that's where I attribute a lot of my success to is I have, uh, I had years and years and years of finance background And then I had many years of real estate development background. And then as I started to learn the solar industry, I recognized that unlike a traditional real estate developer where financing is standardized, there was no standard for financing solar systems. And in fact, it was very difficult to get solar systems financed because the collateral isn't a hard collateral like a building. Solar systems are just, they're really just equipment. They're they're infrastructure. But there, you don't have a, you can't repurpose it for any other use other than generating electricity. So you have to make sure that when you develop a solar project, that you have absolute security on that revenue stream. 
and any other revenue streams, environmental attributes, state, federal incentives, you know, any revenue source from a solar project, you have to be able to support from your lender assurance that that revenue will be available to service the debt on on the loans that you take to to build the systems. So I, I think having the construction background, having the real estate background and the finance background made for an easy transition into solar development. One of the people who recommended you not only during his interview, but in following conversations is your good friend, Lyle Rawlings, who was emphatic that we should have you on the show. I know that you guys have worked together and continue to work together. And independently, you know, Rawls, Lyle's been in the business for 30 plus years. Uh, you've been in the business quite a bit less. That said, you've achieved great success and notoriety in a much shorter period of time than Lyle uh, with regard to solar specifically. Not speaking to who, who's gotten more notoriety. I'm just saying that like 13, 15 years, half the time that Lyle's been at it, I would argue that you've built an equally credible track record. Why do you believe that to be true? And perhaps the underlying question is, what's the secret to your success there? And I've had this discussion with Lyle many times. First, let me take a huge kudos to Lyle. Lyle is probably one of the smartest guys in the industry that I know. So with all due respect, I I couldn't light a candle to Lyle's engineering and uh, understanding of, uh, you know, the TV systems. Where I think I distinguish myself from Lyle is in my business acumen. Um, I've, you know, I've been running, I've been running a business for a for-profit business, a number of businesses most of my life. I've, uh, you know, I've been an entrepreneur. Whereas Lyle really came from a scientific background and a researcher background. So while he built up an, an amazing business. He never grew to the size that he could have, primarily because he just loves the industry. And frankly, he spends more time supporting all of us as an industry advocate and spends less time on his own business, which speaks to why I might have caught up with Lyle, but it's only because my focus is, is less on policy, although obviously I'm quite involved in policy. I've never met anyone who loves this business more than Lyle. I'm in this business to support my charitable interests, my philanthropy. Lyle's in this business because he loves the business. So you can see how his, his career path would be focused on making a better planet through renewable power, whereas my focus has been on earning money that I can use to support my charitable interests. So it's just a different different mindset. There's few people that I've met in the industry that are as knowledgeable as Lyle when it comes to PV systems. And I'd argue that there's few people in the industry that understand the business aspect of solar development better than I do. So I, I think that's where we, you know, we're, we're distinguished and yet we make great partners for that same exact reason. I support him and in, 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 in I'm helping him grow his business and he supports me and, and helps me when all the, all the technical uh, and engineering type issues. Perhaps I'm answering my own question, which I asked previously, but I'd love your insight into this, this idea of whether there are any nuggets to this question, the secret of my success, right? Like the secret of your success in the solar industry is not uh, perhaps so much a secret as a savvy application of the business acumen you had been accumulating over three decades? Yeah, I think because of the different businesses that I've been involved in and uh, been a principal in, I 
have a bit of a different view when I, you know, my perspective is a little different than many others when I look at an opportunity. I recognized early on uh, when I was able to to basically sit, repurpose some of my real estate projects into solar projects that there was a tremendous opportunity. And then as I watched uh, and saw that the uh, the world, basically, uh, not even the country, but the entire world uh, was focused on renewable development. And I, I saw that, that there was a very clear pathway to a successful business. However, it was a very, very, very difficult time because it was impossible to finance solar projects in the early years. Uh, in fact, I, I get a real kick out of that because early on in my career, there was, a, there was plenty of projects. You could find projects anywhere that you couldn't find any money to build them. Today's the complete opposite. There's very few, there's tons of money chasing renewable projects, but they're very hard to develop and find. All the low hanging fruit has already been you know, plucked. So I think that the fact that the financing is such a significant part of solar development today, where does the success come from? It comes from understanding how to develop a solar project that makes it easily financeable by the most conservative lenders. And that's the real trick. There's, there's so many simple little things that can be done that will enable you to get lower cost of capital. And let's face it, we've driven down the cost of solar. The revenue, you know, uh, gas prices have kept uh, electric prices down. So, you know, we're, we're not seeing the upside on the revenue. We're not seeing the kind of cost reductions that we've seen in the past. So the next natural uh, area to make these projects uh uh, to continue to develop solar projects, you have to be very, very, very diligent in ensuring that you have low cost of capital. So, for those who are familiar with your uh, with your name, but perhaps not your story, and some of the broader implications of the past work you've done, I just wanted to make a recommendation for folks. I don't, I don't often like to sort of retell stories that have been told before. I, I did want to give a hat tip to Jan Brandt, the Solar Wake Up Live podcast, where. Uh, you, as I understand, have been the most downloaded episode of, of Solar Wake Up Live. Uh, and you do go into detail about the BPU and a lot of your development in New Jersey and what the implications were for the broader Northeast market. And I want to spend the time that we have left today, not only talking about where you see the market going, but how that core ethos driving you is, as you mentioned, to create more wealth that can be redistributed through your philanthropic efforts. Given that you see this deep need to reduce the cost of capital through, as you put it, very simple levers. Help us understand what you believe to be the next frontier market, so to speak, with regard to solar becoming a standard rather than an ancillary service in our ecosystem. Similar to real estate development, in order for us to get solar development to be more standardized, we have to have a, a, a financing methodology that recognizes the true aspects of a solar system um, as opposed to what most financiers now look at a solar system as being. Most financiers look at a solar system as equipment. And quite frankly, it is. It's infrastructure, you know, it's, uh, uh, and some panels. It's, it's really very different than, than a real estate development. And yet, the fact that the solar system is is a stable piece of infrastructure, we should be able to finance it just like we finance real estate. And in fact, that's uh, about two years ago, me and a partner recognized this and we began a, a long process of trying to get the industry to recognize 
and in particular, the IRS to recognize the solar systems as real estate. We were aware of a, a uh, number of groups that tried to set up yield codes and, and uh, REITs to finance solar systems, and they all failed. As we looked at it, and again, with my finance background, uh, as well as my partners, we realized that the failure was in trying to, trying to set up vehicles that equity vehicles to finance debt. A yield co is not a debt instrument. A REIT, a uh, solar REIT, like the Hammond Armstrong REIT, is not, it's an equity investment. So we looked at it and said, well, we should be doing is we need a debt instrument. The REIT is a great debt instrument for real estate. Why can't we use a REIT for a solar system? Um, so we began going down that thought process. My partner actually was uh, the founder and owner of a large telecommunications company, and they built cell towers. And they put cell towers on lots and on buildings, very much like we put solar systems. He had gotten a PLR from the IRS for his business that enabled them to treat the cell towers as real estate. So we went in on the same approach and asked the IRS to treat a solar system like a cell tower. We already knew from the Hammond Armstrong ruling that the IRS determined that the panels were not real estate. Quickly, the reason that mortgage REITs, that ours is the first mortgage REIT, is because in an equity REIT, in a REIT, 75% of the assets have to be real estate assets in order to qualify as a REIT. And you want to qualify as a REIT because your investors get tax advantage returns, which lowers the cost of capital. So in order to be treated as a REIT, as an equity REIT, which is what the others were doing, the IRS determined under the Hammond Armstrong ruling that if more than that a panel is not considered real estate, but that the rest of the solar system that's permanently attached to the building or to the ground would be considered real estate. Unfortunately, the panel is more than 25% of the value of a solar system. And since a REIT can't have more than 25% of non-real estate assets, it disqualified it as a REIT. Hammond Armstrong was able to get it qualified as a REIT because they own the underlying building as well as the solar system and the panels. So there the panels are only 2 or 3% of the value of the real estate because you have the building itself with the, with the ground. We recognized where the failure was and said, well, a mortgage is also considered real estate and a, you can have a mortgage real estate investment trust. So we looked at that, went to the IRS, we you know, hired top attorneys. Uh, in fact, we hired Keith Martin from Norton Fulbright. And we went down and uh, had some meetings at the IRS. And I remember our very first meeting, we had three divisions of the IRS with 13 different agents. And they sat around the table and one agent from one division said, those solar systems are equipment. They're not real estate. We give you a hundred percent deduction on the on uh, depreciation, uh, and we give you an investment tax credit because it's equipment. And then the other agent turned around and said, "No, no, 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 no. They're real estate, permanently attached to the ground, to the building. From our uh, our REIT side, there we consider them real estate. So we have three different divisions all arguing: Is it real estate? Is it is it uh, equipment? You know, what is it? Ultimately." The three divisions got together and we got a determination that, in fact, this is good real estate without going into some of the details that we paid very heavily for and <laughs> obviously don't want to give trade secrets away. But we managed to get rulings that 
that and that enabled us to raise capital in the capital markets. Um, we hired Marathon Capital to do our capital raise. Treating these systems as mortgages, we developed a program we believe will revolutionize the industry. It's going to change the way solar is developed in the United States. Um, and it's basically empowering the small and medium-sized developer to begin to own their projects on their own balance sheets and capturing the full value of the development work they do, as opposed to having to sell them to aggregators, Mm -hmm. speaking to the other developers out there. I, I spent many years developing projects and creating a tremendous amount of value for a lot of other people. And I, and I recognize that, for, for example, remember, I come from New Jersey and we have an SREC market. SRECs are, are significantly discounted when they're not contracted. And you can only get three to five year forward contracts. So all your back end SRECs were discounted by as much as 70, 80, 90%, which means that you're leaving all that value onto the table. And when the aggregator buys it, it doesn't get discounted as well. Yeah. Well, the, the, the trick though is when I go to a lender, remember, lenders are conservative. They're not equity guys. They're lenders. When I go to a lender, the lender is going to say, if it's not contracted, how do I know I'm going to get the revenue? I can't, I can't assume you're going to have money to pay the debt service unless you have a contract that assures me you're going to have the revenue. So I can't go out and, and finance that contract on my own. The aggregators, they put it on their own balance sheet. They finance it with their balance sheets. And then once they have systems up and operating, then they can go out and back lever it. As a small and medium-sized developer, we can't back lever it. We don't, we don't have the capital to build it out of pocket and then get you know, re- recapture our equity, converting our equity to debt by back levering. What a mortgage REIT is able to do is it's, it enables a developer to use his developer profits to continue to build new projects without having to sell the last project to the aggregator. Understanding that small and medium-sized developers, they don't have businesses. They may have companies, but they got jobs. Right. <laughs> you build a system, you get paid, you're done. There's, there's no recurring revenue. There's no, there's no future money. It's what you earned, you earned, and it's a job. Because they, don't have, could, because they don't have the equity to capitalize the project on their own and, and have an annuity on it. They have to sell that annuity to someone else as a, in the form of a developer fee. Precisely. Now, what we're doing is we're setting up a tax equity fund. We're setting up uh, uh, our debt. And we're enabling the developer to leave half of their margin in as their equity. All we require is half of their margin is equity. We'll provide the, we'll, the tax equity and then we'll provide the debt so that we cover the entire cap stack. Now they can own it on their balance sheet. At the end of five years, when they flip the tax equity investor out, we already provide guaranteed financing to take that tax equity investor out. And then they can either have their annuity or then they can sell those projects for the full value and capture the value of the development work that they've done as opposed to giving it away to the aggregators. Are you a solar contractor who wishes you could simply cut down on those time-consuming site visits? Our friends over at Aurora Solar, an NREL validated sales and design software, can help you with that. Determine solar access, design the PV system, forecast energy production and bill savings, and present a compelling proposal, all without leaving the office. You know there's a special offer if you're a Suncast listener, and clearly you are. For a limited time, you can get a free Aurora Solar license with the first annual license that you purchase. That's right, a BOGO, buy one, get one. 
visit Aurora Solar at info.aurorasolar.com forward slash suncast to learn more. You could also jump to the mysuncast.com website and click on the Aurora Solar banner on the homepage. Hey, well, I've got your attention before we get back into the interview with Jim Spano. I just wanted to invite you once again that if you're interested at all in jumping on my first ever Ask Me Anything episode with Jonathan Budd. He's the CEO and founder of Power Innovative Platform for Sales Empowerment. Click on the register button at www.mysuncast.com. Hopefully we'll be seeing you live later today. And if not, check out the replay. I'd love your feedback. I intend to do more of these. All right, back to Jim Spano. So Jim, help me understand then the implications of storage as it pertains to the broader growth of solar in, in our market, which, you know, solar, some would say solar is starting to become mature and get saturated in the residential market. I would argue that we're not, we're not even close yet. Let's take a, a, a step back and, and talk about the early days of storage. Today, we recognize that storage is an absolute necessity in order to get greater penetration of solar or any intermittent source, any, any solar, wind, hydro. We need a base load to offset the intermittence of renewables. Unfortunately, the base loads we have today are all carbon-based base loads. What the industry is going towards is a storage, different types of storage vehicles that will enable the excess power generated when the wind's blowing, the water's flowing, or the sun's shining power is being produced greater than is being used, that excess power that's currently being curtailed needs to be able to be stored and then used when the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining, and the water isn't flowing. Five, six years ago, we started a company called Resilient Solar Alliance. About the same time, there was a company called Solar Plus Storage, um, and we began to to develop large grid-scale battery storage systems companies like Tesla that would store that excess power. Because of the economics, the, the cost of storage, it, uh, obviously it required some incentives and, and there are incentives being developed. But in the early days of storage, it was more a matter of being able to provide grid services like frequency regulation and demand response and spending reserves and energy and capacity payments and so forth that one would use in order to offset the capital cost of the storage system. Unfortunately, there were some, particularly in the Northeast and the PJM territory, which is where, unlike the West Coast, where you had lots of, of incentives that made up for the economic delta between you know, a commercially viable system and a privately financed system, we, we needed incentives to make up that delta. On the East Coast and the PJM territories, there were no incentive programs developed yet, um, or there were some very minor ones. Um, that were just in the early stage. In fact, I had gotten six $300,000 grants um, with my company, Resilient Solar Alliance. Uh, and I should mention that Resilient Solar Alliance, there was two companies competing in the Northeast, Solar Plus Storage, which uh, was eventually sold to Sun Edison, and then the Resilient Solar Alliance, which was an alliance between Advanced Solar Products, AF Mensa, and Spano Partners. We had developed a number of storage projects and uh, had a number of grants. Um, and then, unfortunately, PJM interpreted the, the, the FERC rules and uh, 745 differently. And suddenly, we were not able to participate in all of the uh, revenues that made the battery systems financeable or, mm -hmm. or viable. provided the revenue for them, yes. 
pretty much the whole industry closed down. Sun Edison sold off their projects uh, after they bought Solar Plus Storage. They sold everything off. And we had projects, literally, we have batteries that are sitting unused uh, for years that, that sat there. Recently, there's been new work. There's a Rule 841 and an 845 that uh, is now opening up those markets again. It opens the the gates for a combination of markets that enable us to monetize the battery systems. And then, of course, the cost of battery systems are continually coming down. We're, we're basically... You know, where we were back in, I'm going to say, 2008 or nine in the solar industry, where, you know, you start to see some pretty significant price declines in, you know, from building scale and, and efficiencies in, in engineering on, on these uh, storage systems and on the inverters and so forth. So today, I'm pretty excited about a new company that we've launched. The new company is a aggregated residential energy storage play where we're taking thousands of individual residential solar plus storage units and operating them through a combination of software and hardware as a virtual power plant, where we're now delivering the same value to the grid that the large central grid uh, storage systems do, only we can do it in a much more flexible way, and we can do it at the very end of the distribution system, meaning that when you think about a community and you have a, a say a thousand homes or 500 homes or 100 homes in a community and they all have solar plus storage when there's any type of grid congestion by pulling those that demand off the grid um, which we can be can be done with our software we can literally take a thousand homes off of that grid so that we reduce the demand on the grid, decongest those lines, and we can actually even feed power back in and breathe in and out of that grid by emptying some of the reserves in some of our batteries and providing enough power into the grid as a generator. So we're going around the country now, meeting with the different ISOs and setting up different programs. The company that we formed is called MyResi. It's just M-Y-R-E-S-I. I have a incredible team that we've built uh, that, that's currently headed by Scott Weiner, who is the CEO. For those who don't know Scott, Scott was the former president of the New Jersey BPU and was responsible for setting up the REV program in New York. And he's taking the leadership role as CEO at MyResi. One of the things that really fascinates me, Jim, about MyResi is, you know, you it's not as though you are lacking things to do. And yet you stand up one yet another business that I believe that the way that you've gone about choosing the talent is illustrative of what we discussed at the beginning of the interview, which is how you've surrounded yourself with operators so that you can be involved in so many different businesses. And, and you mentioned to me offline, you know, delegation is one of the keys to your success. Help me understand how you've incorporated my resi from a leadership perspective. Once I have an idea or a vision that I want to pursue, then I look for what skill set, what talents do we need in order for it to be successful. Once you pretty much nail down, you know, the the skill sets and the talents you need, then it, it's a matter of going out into your network. I've been blessed, and I have an incredible network. Being that I am on the speaker circuit, and I I do go around the country, uh, I, I've developed an incredible network of of other experts. So with that particular company, and as I said, because I am running so many companies and uh, you know, your, your time is split between so many different things, you have to be really, really good at, at delegating and not just delegating, but choosing the right team so that you know that when you've 
delegated responsibility that it's going to get done as if you were doing it yourself. In my resi, I hired Scott Weiner, who is about as much of an expert in the regulatory and policy side of the industry as there is. And because solar plus storage requires an incredible conversion of the existing market mechanisms to enable the value of distributed energy resources to be credited with uh, or generate revenue to represent that value, I looked to Scott, who who did something similar when he was hired by Scythe. He had to go out and open markets for the fuel cell deployment in order to monetize the fuel cells. So we're pretty much doing the same thing with the solar plus storage by bringing Scott in as my CEO, ensure that the we have the best opportunity to monetize the services that these uh, systems offer to the grid. And at the same time, um, we had to hire a uh, CTO who understands the different markets across all the different ISO markets across the country and what the rules are and how they need to be changed in order to facilitate a renewable future. And then, of course, you need a, a operating officer who has a strong background in solar and has built and uh, grown private companies uh, from a, a organizational and execution perspective. So I found the right set of people, put the team together, and now I sit as executive chairman and I give tremendous amount of discretion to my team. I have a tremendous amount of confidence in them, and it enables me to go about my other businesses, understanding that each one of my businesses is a vertical to the other. So that, for example, I'm financing solar projects through Radiant REIT. I'm developing solar projects through Spano Partners and Gateway Solar Alliance. I'm uh, developing solar plus storage and financing and understanding that the just like the solar industry went from a lots of projects, not enough finance to a very well financed. And now we're coming up with financing programs like Radiant REIT. The same thing will occur with the storage and Radiant REIT at that time will be in a position to begin lending into the solar plus storage markets. We will be pursuing you know, PLRs to get the IRS to determine what part of, uh, you know, once we put a storage system onto a solar system, how that affects the uh, value of the real estate from the IRS's perspective. So we'll, we'll be getting into those discussions, as will the industry, recognizing that storage is an absolute necessity if we're going to a renewable future, and understanding that as each state continues to increase their RPSs and go to these 50 and 100% renewables by certain dates in the future, the only way you get there is either bringing storage in or going through some pretty significant infrastructure upgrades on the grid. And of course, the storage is the least expensive alternative and will be clearly will be the transition to a new grid in the future. Jim, I'm wondering, what are some key lessons or takeaways from some important mentors in your life and career? I think the people that have had the most impact on my life are uh, folks like my coaches, teachers, people that taught me that you know, you get out what you put in. Uh, if you put in a little effort, you'll have a little reward. You put in greater effort, you'll have a greater reward. And then secondly, people that have taught me how to, and this may sound a little corny, but how to love. If you really learn how to love other people, 
everything you do is enhanced your you know every part of your life is 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 that much more valuable so i think the big takeaway and why i do all my philanthropy is because i love to share my love with with others and i love receiving their love back so i think the key to to a great life is really learning to love your neighbor jim similarly uh with that overflow of love i i would love to hear what advice you might give to other entrepreneurs, perhaps following in your footsteps in solar development? I'm going to say that if you do the right job and you don't try and cut corners, even if it costs you, in the long run, you'll be far more successful. Doing the right thing is always the best thing. Jim, what one thing do you consistently do that yields the greatest impact in your personal or professional life? Wake up early, go to bed early. I think we're more productive when we have an early start. You get a lot of alone time when you get an early start. Once you get to your office, there's so many distractions that your thought process is never focused. You're always going from one thing to another, one fire to another, one resolution to another, one phone call to another, an email to another, a text to another. Early in the morning, I'm up at five o'clock every morning in between the hours of five and seven before I do my workout, I get 80% of the day's work done because there's nobody to, to, to disturb me. I get very focused thinking and I can get my day planned out from the beginning. So I have a, a definitive plan on, on what I expect to accomplish in the day. What time are you, if you're getting up at five, what time are you going to bed? This is going to be a little embarrassing, but I usually calling it a night by 8.39 and I'm usually asleep by 10. Well, I don't think that's embarrassing at all. Actually, you'd be surprised the number of, uh, of uh, folks I've asked that question who are in bed no later than 10. Usually their goal is nine to 9.30. Uh, especially if their target is 4.30 to 5 a.m. I mean, you got to get your sleep. <laughs> yeah, which actually uh, b- brings up a, a separate question for me of like, you're on the speaking circuit. I see you at conferences. Uh, you know, at conferences, a lot of folks like to go out to dinners and stuff. It makes that difficult, doesn't it? Yes, I drag myself out to those dinners. Like I'm back and usually when I get back to the room, you're just passing right out. Right. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that, that it's definitely takes you out of your rhythm. 5 to 7 a.m., that's where you get 80% of your productivity and, uh, and the work gets done. Could you walk me through the first 20 minutes that sets up the success of that, uh, of that 120 minutes? I start with seeing what my schedule has uh, me doing in that given day. I have a certain amount of work that I bring home every day that I gear for those. You know, If I know, for example, that I got to review a contract and it's a you know, it's a, a closing contract that I'm going to be closing on the next day or two. Maybe it's, you know, a two-inch thick set of loan docs. Those early morning times are when you really can sit down and go through the entire document without, an, without a single interruption and really get your arms around, you know, the terms and, and what you're signing on to. Um, I think when, when you try and do that in the middle of your day, you know, you read so many paragraphs, then you have to take a call or so many you know, switching tasks. Yeah. yeah. And you miss things and you make mistakes. So um, when I need focused thought and I have really important stuff that that I take that first 10, 15 minutes to determine what I need that focus time for and the rest of the stuff I can do, you know, in between all those phone calls and texts. Jim, where can folks who would be so inclined find you or reach out? What's the best channel? Google my name and I'm all over the place. It's pretty easy to find me. <laughs> Let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you, Jim, see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Uh, I see a, a huge, a huge 
and I shouldn't say that nobody else sees, because I think a lot of people are seeing a huge change in the energy markets. But I think that a lot of people don't realize the impact that gas has had on electric prices and decarbonizing and eliminating gas, the impact that that will have for future inflationary costs. Um, Think about the fact that you're replacing the lowest cost fuel that we have with a renewable fuel. Think about the fact that the renewables require new infrastructure. So we're eliminating the cheapest form of electric generation and we're increasing the infrastructure to enable a carbon-free footprint. So I expect energy prices to be much higher than NYMEX index or, or any of the traders are anticipating. So my bold prediction is that energy prices are going to be significantly higher in the future. And I'm going to take the step outside the comfort zone and say that I think it's actually a good thing. I think it's a good thing because it will encourage efficiencies. It'll obviously be far better for our atmosphere and for our health. Um, you know, a lot of people don't take into consideration, yeah, we're going to pay more for our electricity, but we're going to pay less for our health insurance and our medical care. So I think if, when you look at the true value of distributed energy resources, that I think the, the concept of DERMS, distributed energy resource management, I think that's going to be the future that drives the uh, electric uh, industry. And I think that it's a, it's a great thing. Very fascinating. Well, as those things do come about, we will certainly be watching intently and covering them here on Suncast. We have been chatting with Jim Spano, managing partner of Spano Partner Holdings, And as I mentioned before, and you've no doubt uh, discovered here, a nationally recognized expert on solar development, finance, philanthropy. And uh, this has been a true joy. Jim, thank you for joining us on Suncast. I look forward to hearing how our solar warriors respond. Super. I'll look forward to letting you know. Well, well, thanks again, Solar Warrior, for sticking around all the way through to the end. Would you mind just giving Jim Spano and I your thoughts on LinkedIn tag us. You'll find Jim's contact information in the show notes in your episode, as well as on the show notes of the website page at www.mysuncast.com. All the social media links are there as well. If you're looking for us on Twitter, it's at Nico Mayo and at MySuncast. Please give Jim and I a shout on social media. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And is there a moment in time that you remember a story with Jim and how he has helped shape the industry in the Northeast or has impacted your work? Well, since you're going to be over at My Suncast, I encourage you to click on that listen button and listen to a ton of other episodes that we've got there. The show notes and social media website links are there for just about every episode. And I encourage you to check out our Suncast tribe. The Ask Me Anything that we are hosting today with JB is a free one, and I intend to do a lot of these, but I'm also going to be doing more of these as a part of our Suncast tribe, which is my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. So I'm toying around with this to see if it's something that would bring value to you and also to the tribe specifically to gain access to exclusive content and exclusive Ask Me Anything live events with our guests think it could be fun. I'd love to hear your feedback. You know, I'm so happy that you've chosen to be here once again with us, sharing your time, your resources, and your treasure. You won't want to miss next week where we've got Sashir Caramela, 
and John Bonanno coming on to talk about SunVest in another impact positive. Until then, stay strong, Solar Warrior. And remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.